Our scripture today comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 12, and it comes from page 1840 in your pew Bibles. It says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should take advantage of, or should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Amen. One of the interesting things about translating the Bible is that you sometimes have to strike a balance between a lot of different factors. Do you translate what the word says or what the author means by it? Do you change up the word order a bit to make it make sense, or do you write it word for word? Verse 4 of this passage actually has a very similar dilemma. If I were to translate it in a wooden way, I would say something like, each of you should know to maintain his own vessel in holiness and honor. But of course, that sounds really weird, doesn't it? Uh, What could it possibly mean to maintain your vessel? Is this instruction to clean your pots really well or to make sure that your sailboats don't have any leaks? Well, no. If you you read the context really well, you see that Paul is talking about your body. Paul says, this is God's will, your holiness, and talks about how the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And so the point of this passage is about making your bodies holy so the Holy Spirit can dwell in them. So most translators decide to just translate the word vessel as body, because that's what Paul means, and so that everybody knows who knows who's reading knows what he's talking about. It's probably a good move. But you lose a little something when you translate it that way. And that's because the word vessel, as a metaphor for body, carries its own meaning that's lost if you just say body. A vessel is something that's meant to carry something. If you use a pot as a vessel, you're saying that the pot is being used to carry water. If you use a ship as a vessel, you're saying that the ship is being used to carry people or cargo. Paul uses the word vessel for our bodies. And the reason he does that is because he also sees our bodies as carrying something. And in this case, he means that our bodies are meant to carry the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are a vessel that carries God himself. God is present with us in our very bodies. I think this thing about the presence of God is something we take for granted sometimes. We think, 
yeah, God is with us in our hearts, so that's a pretty cool idea. Or, I feel like God is near me sometimes. Or, I feel God in this Chili's tonight. At best, we just have this vague feeling that it might be a good thing that God is with us. But actually, the idea that God is with us is a huge part of the Christian message. And it's one of the most explosive and incredible ideas in the New Testament. It's a really important theme in all of Paul's writings. He talks about how we have the treasure of God's presence in our own weak bodies that look like jars of clay. Or he talks about how we should make sure that our body, bodies are treated honorably so that they can be used for the honor of God's presence. Or he talks about how our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. This is a really big deal for Paul. And he can't help but get poetic whenever he talks about it. For Paul, this is one of the most incredible things about the gospel. So let's try and get a little bit of an idea of why Paul thought it was so cool. The presence of God is a huge deal in the Old Testament. God made the world not only so that we could live in it, but also that he could live in it with us. But Adam and Eve sinned, and that began to unravel and destroy the good world that God created. For that reason, the world wasn't a suitable place for God to live. From the very beginning, when God withdrew his presence from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the world has been in desperate need of the presence of God. God was the one that made the world, and without him, the world would slowly be unmade. Humans recognized that problem, and they tried to get God's presence back in all sorts of ways whether through building really big towers in Babel to try to reach up to God, or through making huge sacrifices, or through replacing God with all numbers of things. All this, as you can see, has failed. The world was made for God to be with us, and it can never function properly without him. Even in the very earth that we walk today, the places where God is with, most with us are the most heavenly, and the places where God isn't are most hellish. In fact, that's the very definition of each of those things. Heaven is where nothing stands between humans and God, and he is perfectly present. Hell is where God is completely absent. If you think about it, there are so many problems that we face in society that we simply don't have the resources to fix, even though we are quite rich as a society. There are evils in this world that are so terrible that it almost feels insulting that they can be fixed with things like laws or therapy. When we hear about an epidemic of mass murder or depression or suicide or drug addiction, there's only one perfect antidote. It can only be solved by God's presence. Only God's light can scare away the darkness that's in the minds of a mass shooter. A world where God is fully present is a world without sin, including all the social evils that makes watching the news almost unbearable. Because that's what the world was always meant to be. It was meant to be a place where God and humans lived together in harmony. But if God were present in a sinful world with things like corruption and robbery, then it would be imp impossible for us to live anywhere near his perfect holiness. It's only out of grace that God ever withdrew from us. Our sin pollutes God's good world. But the Bible promises that one day, God would set the world right so that he could perfectly live among us. The gospel is the story of how God's presence spread to the whole world so that the world would be set right and all the seemingly incurable problems we see would go away. It began when God promised that he would live among Abraham and at the, 
and his descendants at the very beginning of the Bible, and that the world would begin to be set right through his family. It was God's presence that blessed the children that, his children and freed them from slavery. For 40 years, the people of Israel had to grapple with how they would manage to live as sinful humans in the midst of the presence of God, with God living in a tent right next door to them. Eventually, God was present with them in a temple made with foundations. And the idea was that God's presence would slowly spread out from the temple in Israel to the rest of the world. But even then, God's presence was dangerous because of sin. And there were entire books in the Bible written to make sure that the temple remained holy so that God could remain there. You had to burn just the right kind of incenses. The temple had to be built just right. And the sacrifices of the animals had to be perfect. The temple was made to be a little mini heaven where God could live. As we'll see next week, the consequences for ignoring those rules were extreme. The presence of God was here, and it was dangerous. But Israel sinned a lot, and they defiled the promised land that God had given them, so that God had to leave his people, and God was no longer present with them. It seemed like the plan for God to save the world by returning to it through his his people was lost. But then God came in the form of a human being, in Jesus Christ, and he was Emmanuel, God with us. After all these years, God had finally managed to return to his creation. And he lived not in a mini heaven in the temple, but in the middle of our mess right here in order to transform it. By the end of his life, when he died on the cross, the veil on the temple that kept us out of the most holy and heavenly place was torn. And that meant that the spirit of God was on the loose. God was no longer confined to a building, but instead his presence was able to go out to the whole world and save it, just like it was always meant to happen. And neither was it confined to one people group anymore, because God's presence rested on the whole early church at Pentecost and enabled them to speak all the languages of the earth so that the presence of God could be spread to the whole world. And it would be spread by being carried by normal, everyday Christians all the way from Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And if we have become Christians, we have that exact same presence of God which the world so desperately needs. And the same presence of God that required whole books of laws and regulations just to be kept in a temple. And it lives right now within our very bodies. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? If God is present with us in our very bodies, that means that we carry within us the antidote to the world's seemingly incurable disease. Christians shouldn't be afraid to go anywhere because God is with them. This was the role of God's people from the very beginning. We are tasked with the same kinds of things, tripping and fumbling through life only to see that people are converted, lives saved, and the world blessed. And all of that explicitly because God is with us. Where we go, God goes with us. And where God is, the world is blessed. A faithful Christian is the most dangerous thing to the enemy. Not because of their own cunning or skill, but simply because God is with them. It's not through your skills and wisdom that God is completing his plans, but simply through your presence and the fact that God is with you. That started with when Jesus said, surely I am with you always. And it continued through Pentecost, when the Spirit of God rested on the whole church, and it's still true today. 
And our church is a people group not totally unlike Israel, made to carry the presence of God to the whole world. Paul says in our passage, we were chosen not on the basis of uncleanness, but into holiness. We are meant to be a holy people whose very bodies are fitting and proper vessels for God himself. And if our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, where God himself lives, how could our bodies not be treated as holy? The original temple needed whole books of the Bible just to tell us how to make sure that God could remain in us. How could we not treat our bodies where God dwells within us similarly? This is a way, I think, that Christians will necessarily look differently from everyone else. It's easy in our culture to think that all that really matters is up in your brain and that your body isn't such a big deal. But the gospel says that our bodies were made for God himself to dwell in them. And that means they deserve incredible honor and dignity. Our bodies are vessels of the Holy Spirit, meant to bear God himself. Of course we should treat our bodies well. They aren't just instruments of pleasure for our brain or things that can be degraded however we like. They are meant to be treated with holiness and honor because God is capable of dwelling in them. Just like the first temple was to be treated with holiness and honor in books like Leviticus. So Paul moves on to talk about two special focuses for sacred things to honor your body. And most of us aren't really encouraged to look at them as sacred things, but they really are. The first one is sex, and the second one is work. For both of them, we tend to think of them as just a means to an end, whether to feel good or to buy stuff or to live. But both of them are important for making our bodies holy and fitting for God to live in. The first one is sex. It's hard for our minds to believe that sex can be sacred. But it is, because it involves giving yourself completely to another person within the love and commitment of marriage. The heart of all reality is that the self exists to be given up in love to other people. And sex is an incredible expression of that. It's the kind of love that has a faint reflection of how Christ loved the church by loving her and giving himself up for her. It's neurochemically designed to bind one person to another, and that kind of binding can really be sacred. It's one of the most profound things that the good bodies that God has given us can do. On the other hand, pornography, masturbation, and hookup culture are all terrible inversions of that vision for the holiness of sexuality. Each of them involved using other people as objects for our own pleasure. That remains true whether it's consensual or not. All three are degrading to the human person and the human body, and none of them treat the body as a holy temple fit for the presence of God. Sex is meant to draw ourselves out of ourselves, out of selfishness and greed, and towards self-giving, sacrifice, and intimacy. But each of these things only bring you further into yourself, unable to experience anything like the beauty of God's self-giving love, and instead to experience the slavery to yourself, which is best seen in hell. Contrary to the rest of the culture, consent is the very lowest bar that needs to be clear, cleared for the sexual act to be permissible. But other bars need to be cleared too. Does the sexual act lead us out of, out of, out to love the other person more than ourselves? Does it maintain the holiness and dignity of the body as a temple for the Holy Spirit? Does it allow us to experience God, or does it put a barrier between us and him? Is it productive, and does it lead to a more fruitful life? 
These are all questions which must be asked of anything sexual, because only these things can free us from slavery to ourselves and to our own desires. We are called to be so much more than that. As we've talked about in the last couple of weeks in the Youth Sunday School, the Christian vi vision for sex is so much more beautiful and more life-giving and more pleasurable than what's in the rest of the culture. We see sex as beautiful and holy and something fitting for two vessels of the Holy Spirit to partake in precisely because it mirrors the ecstasy of being drawn out of ourselves into self-giving, which is found in the triune God. But something this holy can, of all things, be most easily corrupted to something degrading and ugly. And when you experience something degrading, it can have real effects on the rest of your life. The second one is work. Again, it can be hard to believe that work is one of the most sacred things that we're meant to do with our bodies. But it is. Even from the very beginning of the world, Adam was given a job to do, which was to, to tend the garden that God had put him in. Believe it or not, a perfect world involves humans doing work. It sounds crazy sometimes, maybe in part because you might work too hard or something, but we all might have experiences of, it, of what it's like to live completely without work for a while. You might remember being a kid and having the whole summer off, and you're really excited for it, but sometime in the end of July or beginning of August, you just get really bored and have no idea what to do with yourself. And you're in this weird situation where you know you don't want to do work, and you don't want to go to school, but you also don't like the way that things are, and you're not liking that either. But we were made for work, and we were made to bring order out of the chaos of the world and to make things better for ourselves. In fact, work involves doing a lot of the same things that God himself did in creation, when he created something new and brought order out of the chaos of the oceans. Work is a sacred thing that we do with our bodies. Work is a good thing with incredible dignity. In the Thessalonian church, though, they weren't quite as used to work, and that was because of the economic system they were living in. The way it often worked was that a wealthy, Ro wealthy Romans would finance armies to go and plunder far-off lands and bring home the treasure. Alternatively, wealthy Romans would buy slaves that were captured in war and make money off of them for their work in farms. What that meant is that a lot of the Roman economy for the extremely wealthy was based on war, slavery, and violence. But they didn't really see the negative effects of it because it happened in wars really far away. They weren't close to home. Those Roman citizens that weren't slaves could access a lot of that wealth by a system called patronage. In that system, the really wealthy Romans would give the poorer Romans money. And in exchange, the poorer Romans would promise to support whatever political goals that the wealthy Romans wanted. It was a mark of status for a Roman person to have an entourage of people that they paid to take their side for whatever they did. It was nice for these Roman citizens in the cities because they only had to work once or twice a week because they were being financed by these ultra-wealthy people. That's why Paul says the Thessalonians should aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He's basically telling them to withdraw themselves from the political process of patronage because it forces them to be dependent on these wealthy Romans, and especially on the system of violence that made them wealthy in the first place. It forces you to believe things you don't really believe just to support a patron. Paul's message here is just as countercultural as it would have been for us. Work is a good thing. 
and a key part of a dignified life. Being dependent on these other people can infantilize you, and it robs you of the opportunity to support yourself, and especially to participate in the creative process of God. A just economy makes a mini Eden, where everyone participates in the good work that God has given them and doesn't try to exploit other people unfairly. Everyone works for the good of others and to support those that can't quite support themselves. Micah 4 describes it beautifully. It says, God shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his own vine and under his own fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Imagine being a community characterized by this kind of fruitfulness. What would the world say? Imagine if we said, all the peoples walk each in the name of its own God, whether that's the God of sex, Venus, or the God of money, Mammon, exploiting one another economically and sexually. But we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever, bearing witness to the peace of God and living quiet, fruitful lives that show what it's like to live in a mini Eden or even right here. Imagine if we become the kind of community that's fit for God to live among us in our very bodies. Our little corner of the world couldn't help but be set right. So if God is present with us in our very bodies, that means that we carry within us the antidote to the world's seemingly incurable disease. Christians, Christians shouldn't be afraid to go anywhere because God is with them. And through our very bodies, God is reclaiming the entire earth as his home. And our little church family has the opportunity to be his vessel. That's true in even areas we take for granted and are ashamed of, like sex and work, which are sacred things that God has given to us. And we get to bear witness to what a changed world really looks like by making this church a mini Eden where God walks among us. Let's pray. God, come powerfully to your church so that we can experience a foretaste of what the new heavens and new earth really look like. We need your presence at all times for that purpose. So cleanse our bodies and our minds so we can be a vessel for your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.